This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 24th, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. The Federal Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board has analyzed many of the revelations about the National Security Agency and found NSA programs wanting. Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, breaks down the report. The report released this week by the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board uh, first confirms, uh, and indeed with respect to the specific 215 program, the NSA's telephony metadata program that it was really focused on goes even further than the president's own hand-picked review group. So we now have two expert bodies uh, that have analyzed this program, this telephony metadata program, um, with access to classified records and essentially concluded that it is not providing unique value and that bulk collection of records by the government should end. The president's review group had suggested that perhaps if it was thought necessary, uh, there could still be some kind of aggregation of records by some kind of third party. Uh, That's the option the president has suggested they may go with. Um, That has plenty of problems of its own. Um, So if you've got bulk collection still happening, but it's Booz Allen holding onto the records, it's not clear why that's much better from a privacy perspective, even though it would be better in the sense that you would still now have uh, judicial orders for individual searches of that data for each individual phone number. But this review group report goes further and really says it's time for this program to end. They talk about, first, why it's probably not lawful, uh, why the uh, courts that have approved this are, are, are wrong, and also looks in some detail, I think really the most detail we have yet, at some of the claims made by the intelligence community as to the efficacy of this program. In terms of uh, legality, you know, we keep hearing from the administration that this program, this NSA program that collects billions of phone records of Americans in a massive database indiscriminately um, has been reviewed by 15 judges over uh, the past seven or eight years. Uh, And one thing this report makes clear is that only this summer, only after the Snowden releases, did we really get a thorough legal analysis of the justification for the program? So the FISA court, we, we now understand, uh, was basically uh, back backfilling um, a justification that they had not really spelled out in any kind of detailed opinion. So it seems like what you really had was one judge after another sort of signing off without too much analysis. Uh, and so it's not, I think, that 13 judges independently Uh, came to some kind of reasoned conclusion that this was a legal program, but rather that, uh, you know, an initial judge went along with what the government wanted and then future judges were willing to sign off and renew that order. Um, It's not a sign that there were sort of 13 independent legal minds uh, coming to bear on this. And the report actually makes a pretty good argument for why this program is not, uh, in fact, lawful. Uh, this, This mass collection of phone records is authorized Uh, so NSA claims, by Section 215 of the Patriot Act, which uh, is supposed to allow the FBI to obtain records that are relevant to a national security investigation. Um, And sort of like the Holy Roman Empire, it fails on all of those counts. It's neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Uh, This program is not about the FBI getting records. They're not records because uh, these orders are prospective. That is, it's not, as is usually the case, that they're getting with these orders records that already exist, but making a future claim 
on records that don't yet exist. That's there's a different separate authority that that actually does allow that. Um, they're not relevant to an investigation. Um, that is to say, they're getting records for the purpose of looking for links to some terror groups, but it's not any particular investigation uh, that they're serving by getting all these records. And perhaps most importantly, they're not relevant, at least not, as, as the board says, uh, unless you adopt a definition of relevance that is circular and meaningless. Um, as they note, in, in basically every other legal context you can look at, relevance is understood to mean that there's some specific nexus to some entity that's under suspicion or some person that's under suspicion. Uh, and so it may be that you get records a little more broad than specifically the evidence you need. Um, but relevance has never meant, well, let's get everything and go on a fishing expedition. And by looking through everything, we'll turn up something relevant. Now, uh, you've made the point before that there's a, a troubling, perhaps, culture with respect to having secret courts making these uh, determinations, this would seem to point to uh, that culture where it's not an adversary. These aren't adversarial proceedings. Yeah, and that's one reason I think the board recommends uh, something the president has at least endorsed, which is the creation of a sort of advocate's office to ensure that the FISA court is not just hearing only the government's side all the time. You know, regular courts issue search warrants or wiretap orders, and those proceedings are secret because you can't tip off the people you're going to wiretap. Um, but that's part of a process that usually ends in an indictment. So uh, the judge may not hear an opposing side when the warrant is granted, but they know that there's going to be eventually an adversarial proceeding where if the warrant is granted too freely, uh, opposing counsel is going to certainly raise, uh, raise that as an objection. And uh, here, I think we see very clearly that you have a situation where, um, you know, really the FISA court twisted itself in knots, um, really ignoring the plain meaning of the statute in order to, uh, I think, do something that the, the government had already basically been doing without the authority of the FISA court. So it may have been uh, a feeling that, that well, they, they may decide that they're going to do this with or without us, and so better not to feel irrelevant. Um, but uh, it's, it's very hard looking at this analysis to believe that the conclusion that this, this program was legal was a, you know, the, object, the, the result of an objective and, and uh, reasoned analysis of the statute. So what do we know about uh, – the White House has floated a lot of uh, proposals in terms of uh, how to deal with data. Uh, what does this report do to either rebut or confirm a lot of what the president and the White House have said? Well, so the president in his speech on NSA recently did suggest that he was willing to end the program in its current form, but he left a lot of the details open. He said, OK, well, the government isn't going to bulk collect this data anymore, and there should be some kind of judicial order that's specific to the particular phone records they're interested in, but we might still need to have some kind of bulk collection uh, and maintenance of all these records in one massive database and maybe some contractor or some other custodian can hold them. One thing that is very clear from this is this is, I think, the most thorough analysis we've yet had of the claims of the effectiveness of this program, and it is absolutely brutal. If you look through, they talk about the dozen cases where supposedly uh, Section 215 contributed to a counterterrorism success, and what they find in basically every case is that it's not true. They find that in 
essentially all of these cases, uh, the program was used to confirm information the FBI had already obtained using more traditional targeted orders. Um, so it wasn't even that it was faster. Um, there are a couple cases in which that may have allowed them to get the records, you know, a little bit sooner. Um, they would have others, but in most of these cases, it's not just as critics of this program have said that they could obtain the same information using traditional targeted orders approved by a judge. It's that in most of these cases, they already had obtained that information using traditional targeted methods. And they go into some detail talking about the case of Najibullah Zazi. One of the claims we heard initially about this program was, ah, it was used in the case of Najibullah Zazi, who had planned to bomb the New York subway. And it turns out, well, they had used it, but they didn't learn anything new from it, really. Um, they had already been on top of Zazi. They had already known about one of his uh, co-conspirators. This apparently uh, use of this program provided an additional phone number for someone that they already were on to. Um, and that, indeed, they would have, using traditional targeted orders, found that same phone number, um, you know, a day later. So uh, the, some of the fiercest critics of NSA, Ron Wyden, Rand Paul, Justin Amash, uh, what does this do to their case in terms of reform? I mean, this really should bolster the, the case of critics beyond, I think, any reasonable question. I think the legal arguments for this program have been pretty well shattered. And maybe more importantly, the claims about its efficacy have been, I think, really absolutely destroyed. It's, it's extremely clear for based, you know, from this report, based again on access to classified documents and in, uh, interviews with intelligence professionals, that there is nothing in the record that this program has provided that could not, uh, that, you know, that in many cases didn't provide anything that the FBI didn't already have, um, but certainly it's never provided anything that couldn't have been obtained by traditional means. Um, the, sa the same analysis applies to some of the claims that, oh, this could have stopped 9-11. And they know that, no, it turns out, um, in many cases, both NSA and CIA, one, already knew that Khalid al-Midar was in the United States. They just failed to tell the FBI what they already knew, um, that indeed um, they had the capability, if they had cared to ask, to... Uh, uh, get the information about the phone number that had called the Al-Qaeda safe house. This is, they claim that this program could have uncovered links between Khalid al-Midar in the United States and an Al-Qaeda switchboard in Yemen. Um, and as the board points out, they absolutely could have gone to the phone companies and said, is anyone in the U.S. calling this number? And they would have known that without collecting the phone records of every American. So we're really at a point where I think it's just beyond any reasonable question that this is a legally dubious program that's dangerous to civil liberties and is not providing, I mean, never mind providing a counterterrorism benefit that justifies the massive potential for abuse and invasion of civil liberties, uh, a program that doesn't really seem to be providing any significant value. Uh, at this point, uh, defenses of the program look like just stubbornness. Julian Sanchez is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.